Hello, viewers. This is Marian Tupi from humanprogress.org, and this is uh, our newest episode of Human Progress Podcast. Uh, today, I will be talking to Mark Henry, who comes from Ireland and who is the author of, in fact, An Optimist's Guide to Ireland at 100. So with that, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for the chance to talk about this great success story. I can't wait. But before we get into the weeds, um, let me first ask you to say a few things about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and most importantly, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I spent a life in data and research and insights, mainly in the corporate world. Uh, I studied psychology originally, psychologist by training, went into the tech sector, and then ended up working in tourism. So I suppose I spent two decades talking about Ireland's success on the world stage. Uh, but it's worth writing a book about because, in fact, Ireland's progress is exceptional. Uh, the United Nations Development Programme puts us up there number two now in terms of quality of life index. Uh, why Ireland at 100? Well, because actually it's our 100th anniversary of independence this year. So I thought, hey, the data says that's worth celebrating. But in this context, it's worth understanding. I mean, how did Ireland achieve that? Uh, it's worth sharing, actually, because there's a lot of good reasons that I think of implications for other places around the world. And it's worth, of course, for us retaining the factors that have accounted for Ireland's success. So, you know, like any country, I mean, the, you know, the news cycle isn't uh, optimistic all the time. There's uh, that 24-hour news uh, negativity. And, you know, in the book, I explain some of the psychological biases that draw us towards that. But the facts say something a little bit differently. So, I mean, this book, yes, it's in the vein of the sort of work that Rosling did with uh, with factfulness uh, that Steve Pinker does in terms of enlightenment now, looking at how we've achieved it, why we've achieved it, why we find it a bit hard to achieve, or a bit hard to accept, but at the same time, putting context on the, on the national debate as we approach an important anniversary. Yeah, and I should mention that your book is filled with charts from... Uh, third parties from uh, from uh, you know renowned um, institutions from academics and so on um, and what I like about it is that you know whenever you're talking about a subject there is a chart um, showing exactly what happened and that sort of thing so we'll talk about the success of the Irish economy in a moment but before we get there I think let's try to position uh, the Irish economy and the Irish society at independence. Um, you know, Ireland has had a reputation uh, as being one of the poorest countries in Western Europe. Um, uh, it is obviously associated with the great pota potato famine in the 19th century, uh, massive outflow of Irish people into, into other parts of the Anglophone uh, world. Um, so if you were living in Ireland in the 19-teens or in uh, 1921, what sort of a country would you be living in compared to other uh, nations in Western Europe? You know, my, my, my favorite graph, as you say, there's, there's 120 graphs in there. <laughs> my favorite one is the GDP per capita mm -hmm. uh, over the 100 years because it tells a great story. Now, of course, it's a story of misery, as you say at the beginning, and for many decades, actually. Uh, you know, our, our, the Irish GDP per capita is roughly half that of Britain roughly 40% of that of the United States. And it kind of stays that from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. 
so in fact, you know, it, it's quite some time before the Irish success story starts. So it is a, it is a century of two halves, really. The first half is a century that really was a battle for self-reliance. You know, it was a new government that got independent of the United Kingdom. They were like, we have to, we have to set ourselves up as our own nation. Uh, but it was predominantly an agricultural economy. Its greatest exports were overwhelmingly going to the UK, more than 90%. So they were still very, very dependent. We were still dependent on them. They tried to throw up uh, tariffs to try to say, oh, well, they tried to support uh, local industry and independent industry. It didn't work. It didn't work. You know, and, and essentially there was stagnant employment for those 50 years. For those 50 years out of a population of what would have been between three and three and a half million people at that time, there was never more than 1.1 million in employment. So they basically stayed completely stagnant all the way up to the 50s. Well, let me uh, interrupt you there. Forgive me. Uh, let me yeah. interrupt you there just for a second. Um, when you say it stayed the same way relative to the United Kingdom and the United States, are you saying as a share of the GDP at 40% or are you actually saying that it just stagnated and never rose in the first half of the 20th century? Which one of those two? Yeah, certainly as it's as a share. But as you'll see, uh, you know, for most of that kind of up until after World War II, there wasn't really any growth for anyone. And then it only kind of began uh, to grow. But you'll see it, it grew slowly. And that meant, to your point, you talk about emigration. And emigration was a feature of Irish life, as you say, from the uh, 1800s. But right through, I mean, the 1950s uh, were a terrible time where more than a third of people in their 20s just up and left because there was no employment prospects. You had a job, you were going to keep it. Uh, and you know, there was no growth. So, so you had that first 50 years right up to the 70s, uh, which we would describe as relative stagnation. Uh, and then you had this period of, of openness that really triggers and, and, and is part of the key success factors for the following 50 years. Uh, really, I'd say the crossover moment is 1973, because that's when Ireland joined the European Union. And so much followed from what was the European economic uh, community uh, at that time. So we'll get into that. But it was definitely you know, a, a period where it wasn't just 1920s, where there was a lot of, of relative poverty uh, up until uh, the opening up of, of, of Ireland. Uh, and we, we'll, we'll come back to that. So the, the government initially, obviously, uh, Ireland had a uh, massively negative attitude to the British Empire. You really struggled for independence for a very long time. And the key as far as the early Irish governments were seeing it is autarky, you know, self-reliance, right? And, and as we know, uh, countries which cut themselves off from the rest of the world uh, tend to grow at a lesser pace, if at all, than countries which, which embrace growth. Okay, so I, I, I get that. Um, what about, give me a sense of things like uh, um, poverty levels or give me a sense of what poverty was like in Ireland in the early 20th century maybe life expectancy and that sort of thing. And, and after we are done with that, we'll then compare it to today. Yeah, exactly. Life expectancy back in 1922 was averaging 57 years. Uh, as you say, made big progress. We'll come back to that. Uh, you know, of course, the, the poverty statistics weren't very reliable, if only because nearly everything, uh, you know, it was so endemic that the newspapers at the time were comparing the, the slums in Dublin uh, to those in India at the time in the newspaper. So, so in fact, this was a lot of, uh, you know, when the, when the Irish independence movement, uh, which kind of started in, in the, in, with the Easter Rising in 1916, that ultimately led to independence, uh, a lot of the people there were social activists and, and union uh, workers. It was much all this is a battle for, uh, for, you know, for the workers and to try to get jobs and to try to uh, defeat poverty 
as much as anything to do with the nationalist ideal of self-governance. You know, the view was, well, if we get self-governance, we can solve uh, solve these issues. So, so I mean, that was that was a fundamental driver of, of, of the change in the first place. As you say, we've come a long way. Uh, I mean, now, as you say, we've added a whole generation, you know, to lifespan. So, you know, today the average lifespan is 82 years and Ireland is just two years short of the Japanese, you know, so we're, we're, we're well up there. Um, you know, the amount of, of, of fruit and veg we're eating is literally twice what it was 60 years ago. Uh, alcohol consumption is down. It's now down to a level it has been uh, the lowest in 30 years. And, you know, when asked in polls in the European Union today, the Irish rate themselves the healthiest. So 84%, I think I have in the book, uh, of Irish people say that they are fairly or very healthy uh, these days, and I say more than any other uh, country in Europe. I this suppose could, that that, yeah, this, go on, sorry. This may be a bit of an unfair question because you don't have that data in front of you, but uh, uh, one of the best proxies for standard of living and health is increase in height. Uh, do we know yes. how, much, how much taller the Irish are uh, as opposed to 100 years ago, approximately? We do, we do. Uh, <laughs> and it's in the book, and I have a lovely, lovely picture of that. I, the Irish, so men and women, uh, women are 11 centimetres taller than they were at that point in time, and they are now, on average in Ireland, as tall as men were back then. Uh, men, however, have increased the gap. They've gained uh, 12 and a half centimetres uh, over the 100 years. So, as you say, uh, health and longevity, which actually is that first basket that the UN uh, DP look at in their, in their quality of life indicators, have been monumental changes obviously fundamental you, you mentioned veggies and uh, i always like to ask what was diet like uh, in the early 20th, 20th century because that tells you also a lot about the state of yeah. health and wealth you know and exactly i, I speak to a, a, a historian who specializes in nutrition in the book and she, she talks about really the, the, the what became quite a very vivid split between rural and urban uh, because, uh, yes, the, the, you know, the famine, as you say, resulted in the mid-1800s through lots of people off the land. Lots of them, of course, went to the cities that they moved and cities continued. Those who were still fortunate enough to be on the land could grow their own whatever, you know, whether it was have their own cow, have their own pig. It was generally fresh produce. They could grow their own potatoes, whatever. It was actually uh, relatively uh, protein-rich and relatively uh, healthy or fresh those in urban, on the other hand, uh, the diet was appalling, you know, it was, uh, because, of course, we began to be in the era right, of processed foods, so processed bread, uh, you know, with the uh, processed jams, uh, tinned food were, were all the rage. So, you know, it was spreads, literally spreads in the morning on toast was what, uh, what, what the urban uh, people were eating. And again, the uh, uh, historian puts it that the, the diet of those uh, in urban Ireland at that uh, at that time when urban cities were, were worse uh, than they had been even uh, during the famine. The nutrition there was no uh, improvement in nutrition whatsoever uh, in that uh, in that period of seventy years or so. Fascinating. So fast forward to twenty twenty. Uh, how does Ireland uh, compare? So so now we have the picture of what it was like uh, back in those days. And wh where do you stand now? Maybe let's start with GDP and position. Ireland uh, with Western Europe and maybe the United States and then take it down yeah. with uh, diet and, and the longevity yeah. and so on. Well, exactly. I mean, so, so in income, as you say, now, by some metrics, uh, Ireland is the most productive country in the world. Uh, and this is when you rely on GDP uh, divided by numbers and employment uh, per capita in constant terms. Ireland is the most productive in the world. Now, 
in Ireland, we are actually all experts in GDP versus GNP uh, because multinational activity contributes a huge amount to our GDP. That makes anything per GDP a little bit of a distortion when you compare it to, to other countries. Uh, so we're very aware of it here. Uh, so our GDP is uh, per capita now exceeds the United States. Uh, it is well ahead of the United Kingdom and continues to grow very strongly. We already we bounced back within a year from the COVID pandemic, uh, you know. But we take that with a big grain of salt here because we know that GDP is not GNP, and even within that, uh, even within GNP, there is a degree of of multinational uh, expenditure. So when you take that out, we've developed our own metric. The National Statistics Office here, the Central Statistics Office, has developed GNI modified. Uh, to actually take all of the multinational impact out and uses that to track uh, to track incomes, but the, uh, to track you know the the national income. But the point is, you know, again, look at the book in terms of real incomes, uh, the wages that are going to people, they're five times what they were in the nineteen forties and continue to increase. Uh, household wealth is at an all time high and continuing to increase. Uh, income inequality has declined uh, over the last 20 years. It was at its lowest level uh, in 2019. So, so the the income statistics, uh, and we take the big GDP ones with, with a grain of salt, but uh, no matter how you cut it, uh, the improvements have been significant. And why have incomes increased? Well, because, of course, employment increased hugely. So that, that uh, stagnation I talked about in terms of employment numbers began to turn, uh, particularly in the 1980s and into the 90s, when in a 15-year period, we doubled the number of people in employment. It went from 1.1 to 2.2 million. Uh, by driven by government employment or private sector employment? Oh, primar primarily private sector employment. Uh, we had that, that, that famous Celtic Tiger period, which, uh, which you might come back to, of extraordinary economic growth, uh, driven by a lot of multinational investment in particular, that resulted in real jobs. So as I say, we, we doubled uh, up to 2.2 million. We had the economic crash then, but you know, lost a few hundred thousand of those jobs uh, into, the, into the 2010s. But by 2019, uh, again, we're back to record levels of, of 2.3 uh, million jobs. And the nature of those jobs has changed. So again, you go back to pre-Celtic Tiger back in the 80s, the minority uh, were categorized as high-skill jobs. Today, it's the biggest sector. Four, four in 10 jobs now are categorized as high-skill jobs. So a huge boom in employment and a huge growth in the high-end uh, type of employment. Uh, so obviously, incomes are going to increase if you think about it, and uh, and uh, household wealth. Well, the, increase, the increase in employment would obviously increase the size of the economy. But what accounts for the increase in in per capita incomes adjusted for inflation would be the fact that you have switched from a primarily agricultural economy into a bit economy or whatever, much more education. I I, I understand that. Um, so, yeah, and actually, just just you mentioned yeah. education. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I think to me, as you say, a that's been obviously a huge contributory factor to it. But but that is that has been again one of the transformations. You know, uh, uh, we've you know we've doubled the number of people who have a third level qualification in just twenty years. So now fifty one percent of working age adults have a higher education qualification. So fifty one percent again, it's the highest or second highest in Europe. Uh, at the moment. So again, that obviously uh, creates a wonderful virtuous circle to your point where you're able to convert uh, that uh, those extra jobs and into those higher skill ones and that in turn feeds into the personal income. Has the uh, massive expansion of the tertiary sector 
um, lowered standards in the tertiary sector, or uh, are you still performing well relative to other countries when it comes to the quality of the tertiary education? We know that in some countries, governments decide, like, let's take everybody into university, and then you know education declines in quality. So what was the situation in Ireland? And how did you accomplish to add so many people to the tertiary sector without undermining uh, quality? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because, you know, how do you assess uh, uh, quality, perhaps international rankings? Uh, I mean, I talk about that in terms of international rankings of universities, for example, the third level institutions. I, I have a chapter at the end of the book where I talk about our challenges uh, for the century ahead as we enter into our, our, our second century. And educational investment is one of the ones that I call out as, as a challenge or risk uh, because I, I talked about the economic crash. We had, and obviously continued to have, growth in student numbers uh, and growth in intake as a percentage uh, into third-level institutions. It currently stands at 69% last year. There's 69% of people have finished second-level education, as you say, going into tertiary. It's huge. Um, but government investment uh, was cut back in the Great Recession and hasn't kept pace. So the average spend, government investment, in terms of dollars or euros per student, uh, is now 50% of what it was uh, back in 2008, 2009. So, so that's a risk factor, because to your point, how do you retain quality if you're not investing? You need to, uh, you need to increase uh, the investment uh, going forward. So that, that definitely is one of those warnings uh, factors for Ireland. But um, no, but I mean, I, I think overall the sense is when you looked at the rankings up until recently, uh, up until the last couple of years when that investment cut back has begun to bite, uh, Irish institutions did particularly well and generally speaking, gained in rankings, but that has been undone a little bit in the last few decades, in the last decade, I'd say. What is, or what was the, um, what was the response of the Irish readers to this book? When they are, when they are hit over the head with what is after all a big book, is it incredulity? Is it pride? What is it? It's a great question. And, and actually, the book has been hugely well received and actually attracted a huge amount of media interest for, all, for I think, a variety of different reasons. I think one is because it speaks to a bit of optimism uh, at a time when people have been feeling a bit challenged over the last couple of years. So, so people have been looking for positivity. And lots of uh, journalists reach out to me to say, we want positive stories. Tell us the story. Um, Secondly, I, I think, yes, there is a bit of a pride as we come up to a, a big anniversary. But, but I think more fundamentally, um, there's a lot of people who feel positive about their personal circumstances and find it a little bit difficult to relate to a negative news cycle. I don't blame media for that. I mean, it is what human beings want to consume. Uh, they, they're, we're on the lookout for the negative. We, we time, we can cover that chapter. But the point is uh, that that most people in Ireland are happy, you know, 97% of the last EU poll in 2017, 97% agreed or strongly agreed that they were generally happy with their lives. Only 1% weren't. That was the highest in, in Europe at the time. But of course, that's not what people necessarily been seeing around them. So I think a lot of people have been like, yes, I recognize this degree of change in my own lifetime. Yes, I can see how much uh, I am better off, how my kids are better off than the generation uh, that came before me. Uh, and a lot of people have been saying there's a lot of truth in this and we actually need to recognize this and stand up and, uh, and talk positively about our progress. So we've been focusing a lot on commemorating things that happened 100 years ago as we come up to our moment of independence. Really, this book has started a bit of a debate about how we've got on since. 
how we've actually, to, you know, not just joined the nations of the world, but actually joined one of the, uh, the, the class of leading nations of the world. And that is something to be proud of. So it started a good debate. Of course, some people disagree. And of course, there are lots of challenges around today that people might have, particularly when it comes to housing in Ireland. We've had such population growth, it's a challenge. And we had an economic crash that meant there weren't enough houses built for, for quite a period of time. So there are challenges out there, uh, uh, absolutely people feel uh, uh, the book does reflect, uh, but that their experience may not be as uniquely positive or as optimistic as Mark Henry. Well, as, as Stephen Pinker from Harvard says, uh, you know, progress doesn't mean that everything is working out for everyone everywhere at all times. That wouldn't be progress. That would be exactly. a miracle. Exactly. So, you know, as, as you resolve certain problems in Ireland, as you have successfully, then new problems will arise that you need to tackle. And that's just going to be until the end of days because uh, human uh, desires are infinite. And uh, um, so you said it opened up a conversation about how you got there. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, um, as you mentioned before, the first half of Irish independence of the 100 years of Irish independence, uh, autarky closed off from the rest of the world, that sort of thing. Uh, the last 40 to 50 years, um, much more openness. So, you know, obviously from, I, 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 I put to you as sort of a leading questions because, because I do think that openness and globalization has something to, to do with it, but uh, why don't I let you um, make those points rather than me myself doing it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so, you know, I, I suppose why was Ireland successful? You know, why has it uh, outperformed other countries, all other developed nations on the UN uh, Human Development Index? So, you know, when they first started that tracking in 1990, we were 23rd place, which I'm sure was a pretty good increase if they'd started testing it in the 1970s. But the point is, we've gone from 23rd to 2nd, and that's, that's more uh, of a gain than any other uh, developed nation in, in, in that period. So why? What has Ireland done? What are the, you know, the, the factors that account for that? And, you know, as you say, pull together all the data, you know, across some hundred different data points that are in the book. You know, I spoke to 50 different experts in each of the different areas to say, well, how, what was it that, that, that led to Ireland's success? And boil that down to me, you know, there are four factors uh, that have accounted for Ireland's success that to me have implications for other countries or other, other policy areas as well. You know, the first of them was stability. Uh, so we're fortunate enough to have been a democratic country for that full hundred years. Uh, we managed to avoid uh, the implications of World War II in Europe, and that has led to solid, uh, well-established, good, well-functioning uh, institutions of state. There have been no extreme swings in Irish politics to the extreme left or to the extreme right, and that has led with a, to a very consistent policy direction. Uh, that's in terms of investment education, for example. That's in terms of uh, attracting FDI. We'll come to some of these. The point is that led to good building up of institutional capital. So the first one is stability leading to good institutional capital. The second one, I suppose, is... Before we, before we get yeah. into the second, uh, th there is, of course, a problem there uh, in a sense that you can have a consensus between centre-right and centre-left around a bad policy. So if we agree that autarky uh, was the wrong way to go for the first 50 years. Uh, it seems to me that the, the, the institutions agreed that's the way we should go until the consensus collapsed for everyone. And then they together opted, both left and right opted to go in a different direction. So I, I totally get the, the, the essential need for political stability. I just think that 
the consensual nature of politics can also mean that everybody is heading off the cliff. And where am I wrong? Where am I wrong on that? Yeah. No, and and you're, you're, I mean, you're not wrong in the Irish example, you know, because there was political agreement for the first, you know, 30, 40 years that we needed to stand alone and, and as you say, follow those uh, those those policies. Let, let me come back to what changed, if you don't mind, just to finish sure, sure, the, the, the sure. four points, but then then very much to touch on the, the what changed. I mean, you know, the second thing that had accounted for our success, I think, particularly in recent decades, of course, but it is the strength of community. So there are, you know, there is good degree of community bonds for a small country. Uh, there is far less them versus us in this country than there are perhaps in, in bigger places. Uh, there's high, very high levels of interpersonal trust, and that has given meant there are good reservoirs of social capital. In the second point, there, you know, so we've got good institutional capital, good social capital, education. Education, the third factor, as you say, more again from the 1960s, 70s, who began to invest in that were laggards before that, but again, that developed the the human capital that enabled us then to have that virtuous circle going as investment and so on came in. And you see, that fourth point for me is that is that openness. Is that you? You supercharged all of that human capital, social capital, institutional capital by opening up to the world. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But this is the point: Ireland opened up to the world, allowed uh, Irish people to go out to the world stage, Irish businesses to go out to the world stage, Irish pubs to be everywhere around the world, but to attract foreign direct investment in, to attract talent in, to attract learning, and that competitiveness uh, was good for us. So, so, so those four factors for me are are the magic formula that have implications for any country. But specifically to your point, you know, what, what was the turning point policy-wise? Well, it was really the 1950s uh, with the huge outflow I mentioned earlier of youth em uh, emigrants. Uh, it, it, there, there was a sense that actually, after at that point, after 30 years of being an independent nation, we were failing a generation, a third of people in their 20s or so, having to leave. Uh, there was a sense of, oh my goodness, we've created no jobs. You know, with, we, we can't, we're not offering our kids a future. And there was a, a famous... Dublin Opinion news journal that, that had a, an illustration on the front page at the time in the late 50s saying, well, the last person out to please switch off the lights. And it was clear to the political system that this just wasn't working, that the, 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 it just wasn't delivering wealth, it wasn't delivering prospects. Uh, and so there was there was a 180 degree term, I mean, 180 degrees driven by the, uh, the civil servant in, tar in charge of the Department of Finance at the time, uh, who convinced his minister, who then shortly thereafter became prime minister, or Taoiseach, as we call him in Ireland, and uh, Sean Lamas. And they just completely in the late 50s switched the policy and said, right, we're going to attract in foreign investment, stop trying to do it ourselves, and try to create, get other people in to create jobs. And at first, we talk about tax rates, at first, that was 0% tax. They said, no, we don't tax anyone who can come in and create a job in Ireland from the late 50s into the 60s. Over time, then that became a 10% tax rate for manufacturing, and as it was the 1970s and the 80s. Uh, and then as we uh, we came into the 90s, and of course, that was all manufacturing. That was all goods. But of course, then services began to play a bigger thing. And it was like, well, should we extend that tax rate to services? But then if we do, how do we protect, if you will, the domestic uh, economy and companies who are in the services sector. So in 1997, there was the adoption of a 12.5% tax rate for all companies, for you know all, all activity. Uh, so that that tax policy, I suppose. So that, so the it took a while to work. Of course, that transformation in the late 50s of thinking took a while. I talked about how it was really in the 80s and into the 90s uh, that that began to translate 
uh, into job increases and that, that being able to translate uh, in terms of incomes and so on and the step change. But I think, you know, for late that point, though, to the four factors, you know, that, that, that tax policy was born of that switch to openness, that embracing of openness. It was consistently applied in terms of that stability. Once it was adopted, you know, people have stuck religiously, irrespective of change of government, uh, to those tax rates. It, it, that whole policy was supported by education, which, of course, then over time, the importance of the tax rate diminished and the importance of the education of having a highly skilled uh, workforce began to increase and increase. And, of course, it was delivering benefits, if you will, to the community, to the general public. So it actually has retained great public support uh, as well as government support. Um, so taxes, uh, obviously, we've discussed that, and, and it is important to, to say that uh, relative to uh, corporate tax rates elsewhere in the world, including the United States, uh, Ireland was an outlier, and in a good way, positive way. I mean, I genuinely believe that when you are a poor country, um, you know, you, you, you cannot put a 30% uh, tax on a corporate, uh, corporate income, uh, especially if you lack political stability. But if you have political stability and you are trying to attract uh, um, foreign direct investment, which may be spooked by very high rates, then, then these two together can, can have a very beneficial effect on, on the economy. Um, but there's another aspect to, to, to the Irish uh, economic success that I, I, when I was reading your book, I looked at uh, Economic Freedom of the World Report, which is published both by the Fraser Institute in Canada and the Cato Institute in Washington, my employer. And of course, your regulation is also pretty light. Uh, you have a very high level of rule of law, which is, which is very important. That goes with the institutional setup, right? And that's yeah. very difficult to export to the rest of the world. But uh, regulations, very light compared to other, other countries. I'm, I'm not saying that you are a sort of free market paradise, but compared to other countries, um, you are, you are you're doing very well. And that's something that other countries can import. And then, of course, the monetary stability, which you have um, thanks to ECB and so forth. Um, but yeah, um, would you agree with me that also the Irish government in the second half of the of the 20th century took a very light touch to 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 regulation of the economy? We, we did. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, it's great to see Ireland is fifth in economic freedom in the most recent uh, in, index, which is which is very positive. We've been in the top ten since you started uh, the analysis, which is which is great. And again, ties to that openness uh, in terms of thinking, which these days is not just about openness in terms of letting people in, it's openness to, to you know, uh, freedom in social as well as political as well as economic areas. Obviously, been a lot of progress in social areas in Ireland in the last few decades as well. Um, I mean, I, I think that the key factor here in all of this is the European Union for Ireland. And, you okay, know, let's, talk about, let's talk about the EU a little bit, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, because I said earlier that, that, that change of mindset moment really uh, in terms of Ireland beginning to see economic uh, benefit you know the, the, that point where you switch off in the first 50 years of of you know closed door to really beginning to see economic benefit was joining the EU in 1973 uh, so we might have had the policy shift in the late 50s but that was when all of a sudden it made sense of course for uh, multinationals to begin to invest in Ireland to a greater extent uh, because we were part of the of the EU uh, and, and you know I think there was a, a, a lot of investment in terms of infrastructural development funds from the EU throughout the 70s, throughout the 80s. It was well recognized by the Irish public. You could see signs going up on roads and sewage plants all over the place going EU funded, which was great. Uh, but then 1993, when the single market came in for Europe, 
all of a sudden there was a, it's when Irish exports really massively took off in values of course uh, Ireland became a, a hub for uh, international companies exports and that's when the Irish public began to see the benefit in terms of employment and wealth uh, and in fact right even to today uh, in the most recent polls Ireland is the number one the Irish population are the most supportive of the EU and most optimistic about the EU's future because it really has been so instrumental in terms of how we have taken the step change uh, so the, a lot of the regulation of course is coming from Europe and you know we uh, they do a lot of the thinking we contribute to that of course as a member of the European Union uh, but we're pretty good and faithful uh, in terms of implementing EU laws because of course that's part of the reason why so much investment is coming our way. Yeah you know I mean in the past obviously when, when I was working much more in Europe than I currently do uh, I was skeptical about certain aspects of the EU very much but I have never denied that EU made much more sense for certain countries than others and some countries have benefited much more from EU membership um, uh, than others. Um, in fact, Ireland was always at the back of my mind when thinking about infrastructure, because of course, what you managed to do in Ireland is to take the EU development funds, the structural and cohesion funds, I think that's what they're called. Absolutely. You managed to build highways and uh, ports and whatever. In other words, you, 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 you have put it to good use Whereas the region where I come from, uh, which is Eastern Europe, uh, these structural and cohesion funds have been uh, very often either stolen uh, by corrupt politicians or uh, um, heavily um, uh, or, or misallocated um, or very often went unused because these governments didn't know how to plug into that European disbursement system. And I guess that goes to your point about the, 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 the institutions, is that when all this Coracon free money started flowing from Brussels to Ireland, it didn't get stolen, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as you say, in later years, in fact, as, as the European Union expanded to the East, uh, a lot of the new member accession states were sent to Ireland. Uh, to look and to see how we had spent the, uh, the investment because it was considered best in class uh, by the European Commission. So, yeah, exactly. Maybe because we're a small country, hey, and you couldn't get away that much with taking the money, people would know where it went. Uh, there wasn't that much uh, fraud at all. And we had a long list of things we wanted to do in terms of infrastructure. And, you know, uh, being, being so close to the United Kingdom has pros and cons. Part of the pro, perhaps, is that that set of standard is, you know, well, they've got that. Why haven't we got that? You know, we, let, let's let's look to get that sort of standard of of infrastructure, you know, uh, that uh, that was available in that neighboring country. Uh, it, it, I would also say it had a negative for many years because we couldn't get past Britain. Literally, our exports couldn't get past Britain. And until we joined the EU, so we then began to look over the hill and go, oh, my, wait a minute, there's a lot we can opting over there we can learn from and, uh, and adapt. And that was, you know, that was part of the openness that we did, and, and we did with the funding, but as well, equally with policy and equally with new ideas and with social norms and all sorts that changed. Uh, and again, speaker after speaker that I spoke to for each area of Irish life, from everything from education to, to you know, to culture, uh, flagged membership of the EU as transformative in their sector. Did the openness of the Irish mind precede membership of the EU or did it follow the membership of the EU? I, I think this is a very interesting one because, of course, you know, the book only covers the last hundred years, but of course you were part of the British Empire before that. And, uh, you know, of course, you were part of the British administration 
and many Irish people went to, you know, play their parts. Now, of course, you know, the English had the plum rolls, but, you know, uh, we played our parts uh, in, in the army or the administrations of the British Empire uh, around the world. So, so there was that openness. But there also was the, this point about emigration, you know, as we say, from the from the mid 1800s, particularly on, but on all the way, I talked about it. Uh, the point is that kind of meant that there wasn't an Irish family who didn't have a relative, maybe in America, and then later years in Britain or in Australia or Canada. Yeah, so there, were, there was a lot of connectivity there around the world. And I do think uh, people, again, talk to people in the book about this, how, you know, uh, you know, just around Christmas every year, uh, there'd be queues at the Irish post offices waiting for the checks to come in from the relatives so they could get the, the Christmas dinner and the new set of Christmas clothes and all that. So, you know, for, for again, that first 50 years, we were relying on businesses coming in uh, and used coming in. So we weren't disconnected to the world. And again, as you mentioned, uh, the Catholicism, again, it was a strong tradition there in terms of the Irish missionary priests going to Africa in particular. Uh, but also other places as well where Irish immigrants went. Again, they were all forever fundraising every Irish child for that generation that went to Irish uh, went to Catholic schools nearly exclusively. So they were always fundraising or looking for money for uh, for helping the poor of Africa or wherever it was to support the missions. And so actually, I do think as a relatively small nation, uh, we actually had lots of connectivity with other places in the world, you know, as I say, because of the Africa, the missions, whatever it was, we had a lot of connectivity, a lot of awareness. I do think there was an openness to what was happening about it. But again, people I speak to say, yes, but what really triggered, for example, the women's movement uh, in Ireland would have been, well, in the 60s and so on, when, again, emigration in the 50s, 60s forced a lot of Irish women to go, for example, to London and work. And they all of a sudden, you know, saw a different standard of living and a greater degree of freedom. And then the way they came back to Ireland in the 60s and 70s, they sort of began to demand that at home. Why can I have that? So I think, you know, we had that exposure, understanding of what was happening elsewhere. But I think really, again, it was the 60s and the 70s, and again, tying it to the EU and all that, when, all, when the change actually began to be demanded at home. You know, if you wanted the freedom before that, you went to somewhere else to get it. From the 70s on, it began to come back. And, and that was our first period in the 70s when we began to have returning emigrants because the economy began to perform well, all of a sudden people began to come back because they could come back and get a job at home. And that was when uh, those kind of different perspectives and social mores uh, began to be ingested and demand for change began to grow from there. Right. Um, in your book and also in this interview, you talked um, about the, the, the high levels of trust and, and national cohesion. And even when you have elections, it's really center-right, center-left, but not really huge deviations and that sort of thing. Um, what is the future of Irish national cohesion and interpersonal trust in a world where obviously, A, religion is going to play much less of a role um you you expand on that in the book at length about you know how much less religious um society ireland is so you know religion goes by the wayside um you have uh, also ireland is going to become a much more multinational much more multi-ethnic uh, yes. country as immigrants from all That's over Europe, perhaps the other parts of the world are going to come in. So the national cohesion, uh, sorry, the the, the um, ethno-cultural cohesion, if you will, is going to go by the wayside. So um, what what's the future for national cohesion around which idea or what set of values do you think that Ireland is going to coalesce 
to maintain very high levels of trust and openness to the rest of the world? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I mean, to your point, we now have nearly one in five people living in Ireland today who aren't born here because you know we've had dramatic increases. I talked about employment and, and people coming from all over the world to take up those opportunities, which has been good for everybody. Uh, and, and we haven't had any significant opposition to that in, in any political or public sense at all uh, because it has patently benefited people. And I, and I think I, I think the social cohesion, uh, it's there still strongly, as you say, despite, for example, uh, decline in, in religion as, as a force there. Again, you look at the EU polls, uh, eight in 10 Irish people, again, and I talk about in the book, say they have equality of opportunity these days. Uh, again, just short of that number, say, uh, that equality of opportunity is dramatically more than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, again, number one in Europe saying that. So people still recognize, or at a time where people recognize that transformation and recognize that, generally speaking, all people have benefited. There has been a transformation for the better in the main, and therefore uh, people have been given support to the project and support to each each, each other. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, those levels of, of, of uh, generosity, for example, again, Talking about it in the book, uh, the World Charities Institute says the Irish are the most generous in Europe uh, and have been for the last 10 years uh, based on, you know, donations of time, donations of money, assistance to strangers, for example. So, 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 so far, so good. Uh, the ethnic change has not posed any significant uh, challenge. What I do write in the book poses in particular a challenge, I think, as we go into the second century. Uh, I referred to it earlier, uh, the, the lack of housing is uh, and the inability of people who are in their 20s and even into their 30s today to buy a home has become a significant issue that is beginning to threaten some of that social cohesiveness. It is beginning to introduce a bit of, ah, well, that generation were older. They, they were living at a different time and they could afford a home, but we can't and we are being ignored. And that, that, is, that is certainly the political issue uh, of the last few years. And that is driving uh, people to reach for more extreme solutions to that because it's not a quick fix, of course. And, you know, I mentioned how it came about. You know, there, there was huge growth in housing to accommodate all that inbound uh, uh, immigration uh, in the 90s into the early 2000s. But then that crash came 2008, 9, 10. And basically for uh, 10 years, it was basically nothing built. I don't say nothing, but it was next to nothing built. Yet, of course, you have a population growth and more people coming into their 20s, 30s, but with no increase in, in supply of homes. We've got back to a point now where there's roughly 20,000 housing units uh, built in the last uh, each of the last two years, despite the COVID challenge. Uh, but the estimates are that you need anything between 35 and 60,000 per year. So the gap still remains, and that is causing a lot of consternation and, and social angst. And a lot of people are saying, yeah, yeah, I, I'm less optimistic for the future because of that. So I, I think these kind of domestic issues are, in fact, the ones that we need to fix in order to ensure that the fairness is there and that people have, who have reasonable expectations, that they've got reasonable jobs, that they should be able to afford a home to themselves to live in. Why didn't the financial crash of 2008-2009, why didn't it uh, um, sort of undermine the Irish economic model? Um, why did it survive? Why did that openness survive? We didn't have, you know, nobody got up and said, and let's now do 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Was it perceived by people as a temporary blip that was um, somehow external to Ireland? And, and that is why the economic model persists? I, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, that people did feel, you know, 
who the hell were Lehman Brothers anyway? Did you know that it really had not, most of it had nothing to do? What's a subprime mortgage? You don't get those in Ireland, you know. So, so people did did feel a lot of it was external. Now in Ireland, we had invested an awful lot in property, and you know there was a a property uh, collapse then uh, in a domestic perspective. So there was a lot. There was had to be a lot of austerity that people. I think appreciated in the main. There had been a transformation in the nineties and into the noughties in terms of employment, in terms of wealth. People could feel it; they absolutely could see it, uh, and that okay, you know, we had to go through a bit of pain, a lot of painful for a huge amount of people. Obviously, there were hundreds of thousands of jobs lost, but the economic model uh, was working, and by which I mean that within and again, after the book, is it two to three years, exports uh, growth continued. Uh, so you know there was a bit of a bit of a, uh, a trip in GDP, but again within a couple of years it was back to matching U.S. levels in terms of GDP per capita. So so again people felt well wait a minute you know we had the foreign direct investment agency IDA Ireland uh, very quickly attracted in new projects. We had food exports and uh, drink exports uh, reaching record highs uh, from our food agency. Uh, tourism continued to grow. So, so people saw those export, export industries were actually what was going to save us. They hadn't been the cause of anything negative. They had been the source uh, of, of a lot of our, our contributed significantly to, to the wealth of the country before then. Uh, so when that began to return quickly, uh, the faith wasn't lost that this was going to be what we needed to put us back on track. And, and it has proved to be the case. I mean, by 2019, there were record levels in all of this, in all of those sectors. Right. So the key was that when the um, when the crash happened, th there was a generation of voters, maybe two generations of voters who uh, voting concurrently, <laughs> who saw the massive improvement in Irish fortunes. And as a consequence, they were like, oh, well, OK, let's take this on the chin, but let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors, yeah, but absolutely. The point is that they they, they were saying, okay, uh, you know, let's try to get back on that trajectory as soon as we can. Whereas what worries me about some other countries, United States, France, um, uh, is that we, of course, haven't seen um, real growth in wages over long periods of time for some time. And so when you do have an economic crash, um, you know, it's like people are saying, well, you know, whatever we had before then wasn't really working particularly well. So we might as well go for something more extreme. And that's when when you can get into trouble. Yeah, yeah, no, no absolutely. And I, I think, uh, you know, if we've now reached a point where we have GDP levels per capita equivalent with the US, you know, there's not a huge amount of room for growth left, if you like, you know, uh, who else can you catch up with? I mean, if you're number two in the United Nations uh, Human Development Index, Will you beat Norway? I mean, you know, <laughs> to simply hold number two would be would be very well. Uh, it would be a great outcome for the next few years. So, so you know, we are in a in a time, of course, as you look out into the next century, where we're not going to see that degree of growth again. So, to your point, you know, retaining uh, faith uh, in that we need to nurture and support and continue to support the policies, but the factors that have got us here continue to invest in education continue to support that openness, continue uh, to uh, build that, that that social cohesion to support that degree of community, uh, continue to support uh, institutional uh, uh, capital development. Th those things, I think, are going to be uh, important to do, and as I flag as we head into the second century. And in all of those, I think there was one thing 
that we didn't think about, a type of capital we didn't think about that we now need to, which of course is natural capital. Uh, because again, when you look at uh, pollution, uh, at least in terms of CO2 emissions, Ireland is one of the worst offenders in Europe per capita. Why? Because we are still a very agricultural nation in the sense that uh, we are, for example, the Northern Hemisphere, the number one exporters of beef, as I talk about. I mean, not per capita, in actual terms, in the Northern Hemisphere, we export more beef than anywhere else in the Northern That's Hemisphere. Extraordinary. That's extraordinary statistic. It is. The problem is there's a lot of methane is given off and all of that. So that's a harder one to fix uh, in terms of our CO2 emissions. So so there are yeah, that natural capital biodiversity. There are things, of course, that we now need to factor in that, frankly, we didn't for the last 50 years. So, you know, I wanted to end with a question about what are the lessons for the rest of the world? And I'll let you take it away. But let me be controversial for a moment here and say the following. Um, of the four main aspects of Irish success that you have identified, institutions, community, education, openness. Um, you know, it's easy to say, well, it's, I, I would argue that it's easy for countries which have those to, to prosper. But of course, openness, economic openness is something that you can do through policy. Um, you can pass a law saying we are going to be open from tomorrow. We are going to stop uh, protecting our markets, we are going to trade with the rest of the world, we are going to export, we are going to cut our taxes. It's much more difficult to build institutions, which it almost seems to me like what you're saying is that you have that you have inherited pretty good institutions from the Brits, and you kept them and maybe improved upon them. But um, that that's hard to build from 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 the from scratch. Um, if you are a struggling Asian or African country, uh, high level of trust. Yep, there are some in developing world that, that perhaps could apply. And then, of course, education. Yeah, if, if you don't have a corrupt government, then, then, then you can invest a lot in education. But institutions matter. And so I, I'm simply wondering to what extent is this model exportable to the rest of the world? But you've given it much more thought than I did. So why don't you take it away? Well, exactly. I mean, I think none of this happens quickly. You know, I mean, I talked about the fact that, you know, that the first 50 years of Ireland, you know, weren't a great success story, that the policy began to change in the late 50s, that it took really until the early 70s uh, and during the EU in particular, that that really began to pay fruits, uh, you know, began to bear fruit. Uh, but it wasn't really until the 80s and then into the 90s that we saw the step change uh, in employment and in incomes. So, you know, that's that's a long journey. Uh, but again, if you consistently identify and nurture and support investments in these things, I mean, there are clear programs that can be overtake, uh, undertaken over a period of time uh, to deliver those benefits. So, I mean, look, it's not a quick fix, but uh, as you say, you know, investing in all of these areas and putting in place the policies to support development in these areas will enable people and countries to begin to follow uh, the same path that Ireland has. When I talk in the book, as you know, about population well-being as well, and about how a lot of research has now been done about how you know what brings well-being for nation states, and you know, and that has a lot of implications, I think, for for policymakers as well. And I've in the book I've looked at how Maslow's hierarchy of needs can be merged and are applied, if you like, to a population level. Uh, and how you can begin to think as policymakers about how to tackle the basic needs and, and a range of different needs, which if you do it successfully, uh, again, the evidence is building all the time, uh, but will lead to high levels of population well-being if you do that. 
and that is going to uh, connect with your your kick off your your virtuous circle, which will you know build your community, build your social cohesion. Education is part of that uh, infrastructure. So again, it puts in place a lot of the the good building blocks around that. And there's an article on humanprogress.org uh, that I've written uh, that will talk to that uh, that model. So I, I think no, I think we are becoming more and more clear in terms of what the blueprint is for national well-being and for national success. So you know, part of it, as you say, is in here. Uh, part of it is in your good work on humanprogress.org. And obviously, I encourage anyone who's watching this uh, to buy the book and get onto the website and follow everything that you're doing because it's a really important conversation we're having. And hopefully, Ireland's case study can give a bit of light and a bit of food for thought uh, and help inform the debates that are happening elsewhere around the world. Well, that's a great place to finish, Mark. I, um, I do want to urge our viewers to buy this book, Ireland at 80, uh, <laughs> Ireland at 100. Um, for a variety of reasons one is the one it's a beautiful book full of facts and uh, uh you know facts is what we are all about but also i think that it's a great way to infuse people with optimism people who don't live in uh, um, europe and the united states and advanced countries but people who may be living somewhere in asia or latin america or africa where life is still difficult and it's a book that shows you that things can improve um, that that uh, within two or three generations, uh, you can go from one of the poorest places in, uh, in, in Western Europe, perhaps in the world, to one of the richest. Um, and um, uh, it is with that in mind that I really want to recommend anyone interested in facts and, um, um, and success stories uh, to, to buy this book. Thank you, Mark, for writing it. And thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for the opportunity. 